The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Though photojournalism has produced its share of iconic imagery, it's the photographs that lean towards the intimate, rather than the dramatic, that resonate with me. It's often been the essay, the photo story, that helps us to connect at a more human level. There is something about people opening up their lives during difficult and even painful times that allows us to bridge the gap between us and them in a way that is more powerful than anything provided by modern technology. Photojournalist Lisa Krantz knows this well, and her photographs demonstrate that. Whether she is photographing a man's struggles with obesity, or the struggles of an inner-city school, or survivors of a mass shooting, She demonstrates why photography and its ability to tell a story while evoking empathy is as invaluable today as it's ever been. All right, Lisa, welcome to The Candid Frame. I'm really uh, excited to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. I was looking at your work, particularly the, the photo essays that you've worked on, and I really was was really amazed by by the work, especially the story that you did on Hector Garcia. Yes, which is where I wanted to to start the conversation. I was really moved by that story, especially the multimedia piece that you did. Mm-hmm. Thank and you. And I, I wanted to know how how this particular story came came about. Actually, Hector found me. Well, his sister found me. Um, she was looking for a mentor for her daughter and who was interested in photojournalism. She was 14 at the time, and she was given my name by another local photographer. And she con- reached out to me asking me if I would mentor her daughter. I said yes, but I would be traveling. And in the meantime, she emailed me about her brother and said, you know, I have my brother, he's very obese, and I'm scared he's going to die. Would you be interested in doing a story on him? And I said yes, and went to meet him. And he was all for it because he believed that his story could help other people. Specifically, he wanted parents of children that might be going in the same direction as him to be able to see his story and hopefully put a stop to the direction their child might be going in. Um, He started eating um, for comfort at a very young age as a child when he was um, being teased and bullied. And of course, the more he ate, the more he gained weight, the more he was teased and bullied. And it was obviously a vicious cycle. So um, he really believed that his story could help people. And so we just entered into what I felt was a collaboration and I started photographing him and trying to tell his story. When you started photographing, how did you sort of figure out what the story was? Because I know that uh, from what I read that you initially thought that it was going to be a story of him 
attempting to lose weight, being able to successfully do that, and having that sort of be sort of the, the climax of, of the story. But can you tell me in terms of what the thought process was initially going in and how and why that changed over time? Right. I usually don't go in with any concrete idea of what I think a story is going to be because they always evolve and they always change. And also going in, I really don't know the person and truly know their story. So that's what I'm trying to figure out. And with Hector, it was just, you know, a lot of conversations listening to his story and figuring out what I thought it was going to be. I tend to always look for the positive in everything. So especially with Hector, I was envisioning this, you know, he, Talking to him in the beginning, of course, he was fully wanting to lose the weight. He had a part of his problem was his knees were destroyed from carrying that weight so much of his life. And he had found a doctor that said, if you get down to 275, I will do your knee replacements to, you know, over the course of several months. And so he had that as motivation to lose that weight um, because he wanted those knees. His knees had just gotten so bad. He really couldn't walk very far. He could basically walk to the bathroom and back to his chair, which was just a very short distance across the hall. So he was very motivated to lose that weight so he could do that. And of course, me being the looking at things the way that I do, I see like, okay, he's going to lose the weight, he's going to get the knee replacements, and then he's going to, you know, hopefully have, you know, move out of his parents' house, get an apartment, get a job, get, you know, go on some dates. And that would be this, you know, picture perfect ending. Of course, unfortunately, life does not always go that way. And his life did not. So but when I entered the story, you know, not knowing exactly what it would be, that would, I would say that would be the closest thing to what I thought mm-hmm. was going to happen because of his, the conversations I had with him and how motivated he was to lose weight. You know, as, as you spent more time with him and you got to hear more of his story, how did your perception about people who have an eating disorder sort of change? I don't know if it ever changed. I always kind of struggled with food personally myself. I mean, I've never been a very overweight, but I've struggled mentally with it. So I understood, you know, I understand people with disordered relationships with food, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And er, very early in my career, like when I was in, in grad school, actually, I said, I want to do stories on people that struggle with food, whether it's anorexia or obesity or bulimia. And very early on, I did a story on a woman with anorexia, and I followed her for about a year and a half. That was my first real long-term project when I was a photographer at the Naples Daily News. And then I didn't do anything else on it for a long time. And um, so I guess I just feel, already feel a compassion for people in, that are struggling with food. So mm-hmm. I don't know if, if it, I mean, he, the thing about Hector was he was able to articulate it, to articulate his struggle and his journey to how he got to be, you know, weighing close to 600 pounds so well. I think that he gave me a greater understanding of it from such a deep emotional place that he, he came from. So I definitely... I think maybe have an even greater sensitivity, but I was always very sensitive to it. Was his his lucidity in terms of being able to explain his feelings and where he was coming from 
play a big role in the impetus to record him, you know, the audio and the video that you incorporated into uh, eventually into the multimedia piece? Oh, absolutely. One of the first things I did with him was sit down for a lengthy audio interview. At the time, I wasn't, I didn't, wasn't doing video. It wasn't that I didn't have the capability to, but I just sat down with my audio recorder with him that first time. And that was actually some of the best audio because from the beginning, and this is often the case with stories that I wind up working on, is the voice and what they have to say, I feel is so powerful and that that is what needs to be out there in the world. And if I can help get it out there, that's what I want to do. And his voice was, you know, probably the strongest voice I've ever Mm -hmm. felt that way about. It's like, I don't know what the still photographs will be, but his voice needs to be heard and I'm going to get it out there. And so the, his voice and his, the, him personally telling his story was the most important to me. And the stills were, of course, what I do as a still photographer, but they were almost secondary yeah. to what he had to say. Yeah, because watching the multimedia piece, I was so moved by his voice and how he, you know, he explained how, how trapped he felt. Mm-hmm. You know, not just by the physical limitations of his body, but just emotionally and how his weight and all his health problems had just kept him from living the kind of life that he wanted that he wanted to so when i took a look you know as i looked at the photographs there was a poignancy to them that 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 moved me incredibly as as you started recording these conversations and hearing more and more in his story how did that influence if at all the kinds of pictures that you felt you wanted to capture that would tell the complete story of his journey? Well, I think that's part of working on every story is like really listening to the person that you're photographing to figure out like what are the important moments in their lives. And then we have to figure out, okay, how do I photograph this so I can tell this part of their story? So especially with Hector, you know, finding it was just, in some ways, uh, you know, really simple in terms of just figuring out when he was going to be going out, leaving the house, because that was kind of a rare instance, especially in the beginning. Yeah, but I was just wondering about how, you know, having those in-depth conversations with him, how that sort of helped to shape the the photographs that you would decide to to make. Yeah, I I think that is just you said l- listening to him and um, trying to figure out. You know, in the end, I knew the audio, you know, I would want it to match up with the photographs too. Um, so I tried to, things that he would talk about, I tried to figure out, okay, how can I photograph this? How can I tell this part of the story photographically, you know, tell his story? So, and a lot of times that's just being there for key moments in someone's life. So, you know, knowing I have to be there for Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving is a day that is focused on food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I guess it should be about the, what we're thankful for, but you know, realistically, Americans fo- you know, it's fo- focused on food. So, uh, so I want to be with him on Thanksgiving, so especially that first year, how is he going to deal with this? How is he going to deal with the temptation? And you know, be this the first Thanksgiving I went with him was actually the first time he had been able to get out of the house and uh, thinking about 4 years for or at least a couple years for Thanksgiving. So there was that aspect of it as well, him interacting with his family more and just looking for those storytelling moments um, as we do in every assignment and every story. You spent about four years uh, working on this, is that right? Yes. Tell me how, you know, in terms of um, that span of time, how do you keep 
your focus on on the sort of the evolution of of the story because you know you do uh, a daily assignment you kind of know that you're going to go you got to get a shot of some something and you have maybe 15 minutes 20 30 minutes you have to get that sort of singular shot and then when you're working with a photo essay you're really thinking about sort of multiple images but when you're doing that over a span of years how does that compare to when you're doing say shorter more encapsulated photo stories um, it's mainly just keeping in touch with people and, and trying to find out, you know, do you have any, are you doing anything this week? And oftentimes I'll just say very specifically, are you doing anything this week, which um, would help tell your story? And, you know, with Hector in the beginning, it was very easy when he was, you know, are you going to be going to exercise whenever he started going to the gym, you know, and I knew he would go like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So I would go with him Mm -hmm. one of those days, um, depending on my schedule, because I was, of course, shooting daily assignments and plenty of other stories at the time. So, yeah, just keeping in touch with them, always even writing notes to myself, call Hector, text Hector, you know, and trying to figure out like you know, obviously paying attention, like I said, holidays, birthdays, and just keeping in touch. So hopefully, you know, ideally, the person you're photographing tells you, like, when something's important, like, hey, I'm going to go out and buy a new outfit. And then can, you know, and then, of course, I say, can I go with you? So that's how that usually goes. But it's really just keeping the dialogue going between the person you're photographing. You know, Hector seemed to want his story to sort of be sort of a, a, a warning for other people, especially yes. kids and, and mm-hmm. the parents of kids who have obese kids. Because yes. uh, he wanted them to know that, you know, don't take this path because it's so full of, you know, pain and, 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 and regret. What did you want the, the, the work to ultimately be? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I wanted the same thing um, for people to learn from it. I, I think... If I have to boil it down, it would be for people to have compassion and empathy for those that do struggle with obesity or any eating disorder, any disordered relationship with food. Because, you know, like Hector says, it's it's still like culturally acceptable. It's still okay politically to make fun of fat people, mm-hmm. which it's most other issues, it's not okay. And certainly not publicly, but for whatever reason, that really hasn't happened for the obese community. And um, I really wanted to shine a light and give, you know, put a face, like, look deep inside this person. This is what's going on. This person doesn't necessarily want to be this way, but obviously they're not getting the help they need to be able to overcome it. And, you know, we could say that about a lot of different things, addictions that people have. And so very specifically with Hector, I wanted just people to have compassion and understanding and hopefully they would take that and have a very different look at people that are struggling in the future. Yeah, I I mean, I certainly felt that looking at it and and hearing him speak his own words because I so related to his to his struggle to the the pain of of wanting to have a different life and yet having these these significant obstacles standing in the way and mm-hmm. i think i think so many people even if they don't have a a weight issue relate to that idea of feeling like they want so much more from life but mm-hmm. either weight issues addiction physical disability or economic situations just sort of 
being sort of the obstacle between where they are and where they want to get to. And mm-hmm. I think the best work is work that allows people to simply go on beyond what they're seeing with their naked eye mm-hmm. and, and, and to bridge that and, and to feel something. And I think that, uh, that this, this story, I think really succeeds, uh, with respect to that. Well, thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Tell me about working with your editor with respect to, you know, the story and, and, and seeing it to print. Cause I'm sure that, you know, you had sort of ongoing discussions with them about, about the work. How did that help to shape what, you know, what you eventually released? Um, I have a very close relationship with my editor director of photography, Luis Rios, who I thankfully trust completely. <laughs> and uh, even sometimes I go back and I think, Oh, this picture is going to be better. And I'll, go back and look and I realized he was right. His choice was the best one. So I am very lucky in that regard. I sent him, because I worked on it so long, I think, you know, I talked with him more about it rather than showing too many pictures. I mean, I would say like, I mean, I hate to say, but maybe even only like every eight to 10 months would I show him anything. And there was about a year where I didn't shoot that much. I was working very intensely on some other stories and I had an event in my personal life that took over a few months. So, um, and that was when Hector was really recovering from his knee surgeries and not able to do very much either. Unfortunately, that's also when he started gaining the weight back. So Luis Rios, my editor, um, I would send him, edits um, like every like eight to 10 months. And when we work very closely together on a daily basis, I'm always sending him edits and he, you know, didn't necessarily guide me very much in this project. And some, I really ask for a lot of help. Like what direction do you think I should be going? What do you think is missing? We have those conversations a lot, but with Hector, we really didn't because I think I felt like I was photographing everything I could and at that point, it was I was just asking him for edits in terms of choosing the best photos. And I leaned on him a lot during the multimedia editing because I would just edit it and then I would show it to him and say, what do you think I need to cut out? And so that was more of an editing process with him. But in terms of overall feedback throughout, I didn't lean on him that heavily for kind of continual feedback in terms of how the story would develop. I mm-hmm. kind of handled that myself which is not always the case, but it was the case with the story. You studied photojournalism, but I th- it, what seems to have been a real pivotal moment for you is when you attended the Eddie Adams workshop. Okay. And tell me about why that particular event was so pivotal in your development as a, as a photographer. Oh, yeah. Well, I was a student a very long time ago in, at the Eddie Adams workshop, and it's continued to be a pivotal moment because I've been on the faculty for many years as a team producer. So um, it just going there and I still remember, you know, you know, the energy that was there. And it really is this great family feel. And to me, it's also just magical. Even when I go back now, you know, almost 20 years later, I feel that it's magical. And there's just an energy there. Everyone there is so passionate about what we do. You know, not to sound be so cliche, but the, everyone just like really cares and puts everything they have into what we do as photojournalists and being in that environment with people like minded people like that, where, you know, and you're 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 not in that kind of 
daily grind feel. You are on deadline there because you have a couple days that you have to shoot, but really having that freedom. And also as a student there, I had never, you know, as a student, I guess I should have felt that way, but I was so stressed about, you know, assignments and student loans that I never felt very free in grad school, even to explore photographically. I was kind of in a panic, like I have to finish this and get a job and do my internships. And of course, when you're doing internships, you're shooting three to four assignments a day which I loved at the time, and then was three weeks into my first job when I went to the Ida Adams workshop, and I had never spent just two days just feeling free and shooting freely, and mm. I did there, and I still remember that feeling. And now, of course, I can I get to do that all the time. But then it was just like this really like kind of wide, arms wide open, wings spread, like, oh, I can just make pictures and this is wonderful and talk to editors and be, you know, sit there in the darkened barn. And I still remember to this day, like I said, almost 20 years later that when Eugene Richards was speaking and it was like, you could hear a pin drop. It was, you know, I'm still getting chills just talking about it. It's just a magical experience. And it makes you like realize that you're in the right place and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I think that being there really cements that for a lot of people. You know, when you become an instructor and you become an educator and you're, be, and you're teaching others how to learn their own process, you oftentimes learn a lot about yourself and how you do things. Oh, absolutely. You know, going back repeatedly to Eddie Adams, what have you learned about yourself and your own work as a result of teaching others? Hmm, that's a good question. Wow. And it's changed over the years because it's like I've changed so much over the years and the students are different every single year. So um, I would say, you know, when I think about it and some, I'm not as hands on at the Ed Adams workshop as I am at some other workshops, like say the mountain workshops at Western Kentucky University. I've taught there a couple of years. So there I work more like say the mountain workshop, I work much more with them develop the students developing a story over the course of four or five days. So I have more hands on there. Whereas Eddie Adams, I am finding their assignments. And Mm -hmm. I will say like for me now, when I do their, so I find, I have to find them 10, 10 students each for my team, each I find them a story to work on. And I think maybe, you know, I don't know if this is quite answering your question, but the stories that I think are interesting now are probably different than when I was a student, I think I was more interested in the visual opportunities earlier on, mm-hmm. whereas now I'm really more into the story and the life experience that maybe I'm going to get from photographing it and that I'm going to be able to show to our readers, if that makes any sense. No, so, that makes perfect sense. I mean, just it's just, I think it comes with age, this sort of, because when you're young, you're just, you're really thinking just about what the photographs are going to look like. Cause that's really right. sort of the wonder of photography It's like, man, this is going to look good or wow, I really got this great shot. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that over time you start realizing that the, the power isn't so much in the visual. I mean, it is, it's, it's important, but eventually it becomes what these pictures, especially these group of pictures can convey and say and, and move people in, 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 in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I see also how anxious they get and how stressed they get and what they get stressed about. And I realize like, oh, okay, you know, I don't stress about those things anymore. (laughs) So that's, that's good. And, um, but, and also some even just technical things, like, especially if I'm editing a student's work, which I don't, I don't have that role at Eddie Adams. 
that's always like a you know one of the top editors in the country and you know just seeing the different you know I hate to say mistakes they make but you know just the technical and composition things it is a great reminder of like the important things compositionally and technically in photographs that you know can really make or break the photo or the yeah. story so you know all kinds of things you mentioned earlier how things have changed and there's been plenty of talk about how the world of journalism is changing with, you know, this consolidation of media by fewer and fewer companies and, you know, the sort of the hiring freezes, if not the layoffs and all, you know, a lot of sort of negative stuff that, that, that we yeah. hear about the state of journalism. But I'm wondering that when it comes to, you know, the choices that you make in terms of the kind of stories that you tell on your own personal time, Mm-hmm. What what consider considerations do you make? Because it's it's you know from my experience and from speaking to a lot of photojournalists, when it comes time to work on a on a, on a photo essay, especially for a prolonged period of time, it's not something that you're given you're given on assignment. This is something that you come up on your own mm-hmm. uh, usually. So how do you kind of figure out what you're going to do and whether or not you're going to commit a significant body of time to it? Right. Um. You know, I don't always know at first. Usually it's like the Hector Hector story, like hearing his voice and knowing this is a story that needs to be out in the world. Like it doesn't need to be stay in his south side of San Antonio house in this back bedroom. It needs to be out and people can learn from the story. And I have to have that feeling. I think like this is a real, you know, I have to really believe in the story. And luckily I've found those continuously throughout my career. I've never had really a break where I've said like, I don't know what to work on. It's, Mm -hmm. I am constantly finding stories like that, that I am, you know, really wanting to spend the time on. So it's just something that I've done really from the beginning. I've just always been able to find stories that I feel like speak to me and that I think will speak to other people. And, you know, usually sometimes it's just the person that I just think is so interesting and amazing. Um, Right now, like my current story that I'm finishing was about a boy, a 10-year-old that he recently passed away. He had a very rare disease and I followed him for about two years. And, you know, again with him, it was his voice. He had this, he had grown up sick and he just brought this perspective that of loving his life and being positive when most people adults would just crumble and not be able to move forward. And he just, like his voice, I just had to, you know, had to photograph him. Mm -hmm. And his story was just like, you know, and anyone who knows about Rowan, his name is Rowan Wyndham, anyone who knows about him or hears about him, they are just immediately struck by him. It's like, I always say, it's kind of like they're either, it's love at first sight or enamored at first sight with Rowan. Mm. And so it's just, people just, I don't know. I just see them and it's almost like a magnet. I'm like, I want to photograph you and tell your story. Or, you know, sometimes it's issue related. I certainly have done larger issue related stories, but um, a lot of times those come more from assignments that I get. Like I worked on a project about military sexual assault, like survivors for a while, a couple years ago. And um, of course, that's an issue that, you know, will just grab you, you know, by, you know, grab you inside and say, okay, put forth everything you have for the story or the story about the, I don't know if you saw the story about the high school. That yeah. was one, like, this is like, that wasn't, the paper was planning on doing that. And I asked to work on it because that's the kind of, it's like a once in a 
career opportunity, you know, to spend time with such a unique and vibrant and diverse high school. Yeah, so. and let's, why don't we talk a little more about that one, the, the high school project. Okay. For people who may not be familiar with the story, why don't you just briefly break down what, what the story was about and what your take on it was. Okay, so back in 2009, 2010, I began photographing at a high school, Sam Houston High School. It's on San Antonio's east side, which is one of our most um, impoverished areas. The school was is the only high school in that area. It's just kind of on the edge of town. And it was threatened with closure. And the community, there was community outrage. And the first big meeting they held with the school district, you know, a thousand people showed up and talked till two o'clock in the morning saying why they didn't want Sam Houston to close. So the school, the reporter wanted to do the story as, and the reporter, you know, talked with the editor and talked with me, but the idea was to do either a year in transition as they turn themselves around um, if the school board, you know, allowed them to stay open because they had a new principal. They had a lot, he had a lot of ideas on how to turn the school around. Um, Because also, you know, they were getting failing grades in terms of how the, you know, the teachers, I don't know, TEA for Texas decides on schools, how they're doing. Or we would focus on the, you know, it would be a story of the last year of this high school. This has been around for a long time. So the school board decided to keep it open probably a month or so later. At that point, we had already gained access to the school. And so it was going to be a year in transition. So I just saw it as like the opportunity of a career to spend a school year with students. And it was just constant roller coaster, emotional roller coaster at the school. And um, But it was a really wonderful experience. And I looked at it as an opportunity, you know, kind of, you know, a similar vein as Hector, like, you know, we look at schools, you look at like the star test, that's our standardized testing for Texas. And well, you know, they are, you know, maybe not getting the best grades. Well, one of the women, the young women that I was photographing, her, you know, uncle had gotten shot the night before the star test. Well, then we expect them to be able to take the star test the next day. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many different factors that go into that school. I mean, a lot of the kids would come to school and, you know, they would have the free breakfast, but they wouldn't have the proper nutrition and wouldn't have, you know, the home life was chaotic and, you know, a lot of things that they were dealing with that not everyone deals with. And I really wanted to show like that side of it, but also show like how many different ways that they were unique, like any students, you know, find like the academic decathlon team and the you know, hang out with the cheerleaders and the football team and just like kind of, uh, you know, way to show them way beyond what you just see in a, you know, 30 second clip on the news, like failing school and the school might close. Yeah. This is, this offers its own set of challenges as, as opposed to the Hector story. Cause with Hector, you're dealing with sort of a singular story. You're dealing with one person, mm-hmm. but with, with the school, you're dealing with, you know, the administration, with the teachers, with the students' life in school, with the students' life outside of school. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are so many myriad of things that are influencing the story that you are, that's in front of you. How did you sort of negotiate all of those different narratives that were happening and figure out, well, 
I need to photograph this as opposed to photographing that because you only have a finite amount of time right. uh, to dedicate Ooh. to all of these things. So how do you sort of figure out where, you know, where and what to do? Yeah, that's a good question too, because I, um, that was actually when I started, it was a pretty chaotic time in our photo department. We had had some pretty big layoffs in the, in the spring. And so we didn't have a lot of time, extra time. I mean, it was shooting a lot of assignments. We didn't have a director of photography at the time. So Luis wasn't there to help guide. He did come in, um, for the second half, thank goodness. So did, did shape a lot of the, and the, the last few months of it. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was difficult. I first started off with the football team because I worked the eight to five shift on Friday and Saturday and I knew I could get done by five and hopefully get to their game in time. And I would ride the bus with them if it was an away game. So basically I just had to be at the school by you know five o'clock or get to the seven o'clock game type of thing. And so I started off with them. I said, well, those that's twofold because I can get there after work. <laughs> and then also if I get to know the football players, that's a good way to get to know the students because there's also going to be, you know, possibly more acceptance of the football players, which are usually, you know, the group that's looked up to by a lot of the students, mm-hmm. you know, if they accept me, hopefully some of the other students will accept me and be, because that was actually the biggest, the biggest obstacle was the students. They were not forced to accept me. You know, the teachers knew that I was allowed to be in their classrooms. And so they were kind of forced to accept me, but, but the students, they could have, they could have all turned on me. That was always a risk. Um, they could have all said, you know, we're not going to cooperate with you. We're going to, they could turn your he- their heads when I tried to photograph them, but they, they grew to accept me. They, a lot of them felt that the media portrayed them and, and their community in a very negative way. So I was constantly trying to prove that I wasn't there only for the negative. I wasn't not going to photograph the negative, but I was going to photograph all the positive too. Mm-hmm. So that was like one of the biggest pieces of working on that story was, you know, gaining their trust was pretty significant. And, and, and even in the end, I didn't, you know, there were some people that, that didn't, still didn't trust that. So, yeah, but it was, you know, so I started going to the football games and then got to know some of them and then started, you know, just picked different classes like the culinary class. And that's where we met the one woman who the reporter wanted to focus more on certain students. um, And she wanted to photograph this or wanted to focus this woman on this young woman, Tiffany, who had a child and was like kind of the star culinary student and the culinary teacher told us about her. So we're like, okay, well, we'll focus on her. And I had only photographed her one time. The reporter had spent a couple times with her and we had set up to come to her house, I think over the Thanksgiving break and the weekend, I think the, that weekend she wound up stabbing and killing her boyfriend. And so we wound up following that story partially because we had already started with her and because a lot of the students, although her boyfriend didn't go to Sam, a lot of his, the the boyfriend's brothers and cousins did and a lot of friends. So they were all Mm -hmm. very impacted by his death too. I mean, it was just an all around around completely tragic situation. But so that's how that came to be. Um, And it was just looking for different students kind of that we connected with that we wanted to photograph more just had maybe interesting, you know, they all had interesting life stories. They would all sit down and I would like 
feel kind of <laughs> wrecked by the end of it sometimes because, yeah. you know, when we would have a conversation because I'm like, whoa, that is intense and I don't even know how you're here at school studying after going through that. You know, it was just trying to find the students that would, would let us in too. You know, I've talked to a lot of people about who do this kind of work and, and we often talk about, you know, getting someone's trust and gaining, gaining someone's confidence. But one of the things I want to ask you is that when you're working on something for an extended period of time, they may allow you entry into their lives, but there may be times where all of a sudden they may be having second thoughts or there's some mm-hmm. resistance to to having you present with, with, with the camera uh, for whatever reason. How do you, you know, practice persistence, but also try to balance that with trying to have respect for what that person may or may not want at the time? Right. I think that that used to upset me a lot more and I used to get a lot more anxious and frustrated with it. And now I just, I think I have a more of a level of acceptance. And, you know, I, the one thing I never want to do is photograph someone who's being, who's uncomfortable being photographed. And I try my hardest to be like really keyed into how they're feeling about me. And I try to give people plenty of outs if they're, you know, like, tell me if you don't want me to photograph this or I'll may say, if I feel like we're walking into a more sensitive situation, is it okay if I photograph this, if this happens? So I try to communicate with people as much as possible Mm -hmm. without having an impact on what is happening or what may happen. Um, Of course, that's the last thing I want to happen too, but I just like, to me, no picture is worth potentially hurting someone or which I feel can happen. And I just always want, I try to really make people aware that like they're not obligated. They don't Mm -hmm. have to, just because they said yes does not mean they have to always say yes. And I really try to have those, those conversations with people, but it is hard. And certainly um, there's been a lot of times where, where I've had to put the camera down and it's, you know, been painful to do so and, or had to, walk away and I've had to walk away from from stories too because it's just if it's a struggle like it's not really gonna work out that well in the end for the most part I mean certainly it can but I just feel like the most like the the stories that really truly tell someone's stories are collaborations and you really need this like we all we're in it together the person being photographed and the photographer and hopefully we have the same goal and that's to tell their story. You know, now that you incorporate um, multimedia into what you're doing as a, as a journalist, when does the concept of the multimedia piece sort of come into play? Does that, do you, do you, are you actively thinking about that as you're, you know, throughout the process of making the interviews and doing and in making the photographs or does that sort of, a sort of a separate a separate thing that you only start thinking towards the tail end of of the project. It depends. Um, I would say like that is not my gift, and organization is not my gift at all. So I am usually pretty unorganized about what I'm doing, and so I do try to do video throughout and try to do audio throughout. But I will. You know, there are there are projects where I have really done both at the same time with a very specific mission to do both. 
But there are some times, like especially if I work on something for a long time, because I keep thinking like, oh, there'll be plenty of time to get the video. Oh, there'll be plenty of time to get the audio. And there is not always, does not always work out that way. And then I've, you know, failed in that department for sure. So um, because I will almost always choose the still photograph over anything else. And because I always feel like I just, and, and I have done video over stills and <laughs> regretted it um, <laughs> or had to like talk myself off the ledge. Like it's okay. It's okay. It's a beautiful moment that you captured on video. It doesn't have to be the still photo. Um, maybe it wouldn't have worked out as a still. So, you know, I kind of have to talk myself off the ledge in that department. But, um, but I would say, you know, I could, I wish I could say that I was strategic about it, but I'm really not. I just, but I, it's always in the back of my mind for sure. Like, you know, I try to, like, sometimes I even just do some audio on my phone if I don't have my recorder. But a lot of times, like, I'll have a um, an Edderall with me for the longer term stories in case I do want to just kind of plop it out and put it down. I try to think like, okay, is the situation I'm going into going to lead to audio perhaps. And so then I'll bring my recorder and try to think about it. And then if I do think like, oh, this would be great video, I will switch over to video, but I'm not very strategic about it at this point. Yeah. You, know, you said earlier when you talked about how it felt to be at the Eddie Adams workshop that you experienced for the first time there, the freedom that you can have or, or that you can feel when you're photographing. Mm -hmm. Do you find that when you're working on these kinds of stories that that feeling is is there absolutely and a lot of that goes along with my editor with Luis um, because he really trusts me he almost never questions me he I don't know if he's ever questioned me he knows that I am like trying my best I've worked at I've had other editors that have questioned me like why did you do this why didn't you do that which is there's nothing wrong with and you know a lot of times that can really help you um, but he like really trusts me. He gives me the time, all the time I need to work on things because he knows that the best work comes out of that situation for photographers. So I know that I do my best work when I feel free and when I feel supported. Mm. And he allows me both of those things. And I think it's just a mental release for photographers when they know they have that. Like they like a whole, you know, part of the anxiety goes away. If they know someone believes in them. That's a good relationship to have. Mm -hmm. Especially yeah. for creative. <laughs> yes, I'm very lucky. I'm spoiled. I always say I'm so spoiled. So <laughs> Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone. Someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Um can I have two? Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, just based on some of the people I believe you've interviewed before, but um, I think Carol Guzzi. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever interviewed her, but I Carol spoke at the first National Press Photographers Association conference that I went to. It was the Northern Short Course in, oh, gosh, 1997, spring of 1997. So, yeah, almost tw like 20 years ago, exactly. It was, I think, in March. And I just, when I saw her work, I just knew I was in the right place too. Like that was before I had gone to Eddie Adams, but um, I w didn't really didn't know before that. But if people, so when I was, you know, 20 years ago, she was like 
you know, really like always, you're always seeing her work. And that was even before, you know, you could look at everything on the internet, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. but you know, we knew about Carol and I found that like a lot of students, although now she's been on the speaking circuit a lot the last couple of years, but a lot of students don't know her work and I don't think she has a website, but I really, anyone who doesn't know Carol Guzzi's work, I really feel that she's like the best photographer of our time and one of the most caring, beautiful, like just like the most incredible heart of almost anyone I've ever met. And she just belongs in photojournalism and she is such a gift to photojournalism. And so I say, if you don't know Carol Guzzi's work, she's amazing. And she also loves my editor, Louise. She worked with him at the Washington Post. So, um, you know, I didn't know her until a few years ago, but, um, so she's not a recent discovery, but, uh, she's, she's really wonderful. If you don't know her work, definitely look her up. I'm saying this to your listeners, not to you. (laughs) Um, and the other person, um, I would say, you know, one of my closest friends is Melissa Little and she created a photo a day. I don't know if you've heard of a photo a day. Have you heard of it? No, no. Okay. So early on, when, and this was a big part of my development too, and my feeling of confidence and freedom. Um, Scott Strazanti was actually one of the people early on in a photo a day. It was, uh, she created it with the, so my friend Melissa Little, who is also now the National Press Photographer Association president, she created um, this group. It was photographers that, you know, had just gotten out of school and they were at newspapers around the country, some in like small towns where there are like one or two photographers and feeling you know, like they didn't, they weren't getting the feedback that they were getting in school. They weren't, you know, it was like, you know, newspaper deadlines, they just jam it out. You know, you're not getting necessarily feedback. And she put together a group of friends and they started sharing a photo a day. So it was that concept. Oh, okay. And so we, and this is like, I mean, seriously, I was still on dial up at the time I had AOL. It was like really, <laughs> it was like the early 2000s. And she really um, put together this community and it just grew. And she had actually asked me to be a speaker at their, I think their second gathering, which was about 15 people at the Sun Sentinel in Fort Lauderdale. And I came over from Naples, Florida, where I was working at the paper. And she is just, she just built this huge community. And it, you know, I think now I actually don't really participate in the group. It still exists online. um, And so under the concept of sharing a photo a day, Mm -hmm. didn't have to be your best photo, but it, you know, could be a photo you wanted feedback on, or you could do over a series of days, a story that you wanted feedback on. And so I start, I was, you know, I would, it was so hard for me to just send a photo out there because I was so worried, you know, like, Oh, like I'm the only one that likes this. And so I would send something and I would get really positive feedback and it really helped me develop. And so I think Melissa, you know, in terms of maybe someone to, to talk with, is about building this community in photojournalism. And she is definitely like, she now leading the National Press Photographer Association, she, you know, is really into, you know, is obviously has done it. She has built a community. Now she's leading a community and trying to make it better. So um, a photo a day was like really instrumental in a lot of our lives, kind of in my, you know, my age group too, and, and a lot of younger too. And they're still my go-to group of some of my best friends and people that I still um, send my work to, you know, in terms of getting edits. So, and this weekend I'm going, I'm, 
um, speaking at the Image Deconstructed workshop. Mm -hmm. And the person that um, runs that, Ross Taylor, I met him through a photo a day. You know, we were just kids starting out and sharing photos. And, you know, he's one of my go-to editors now, and he's teaching at UC Boulder. And it was just a really um, great way to help us all develop and use the internet <laughs> back, <laughs> back then in a, in a way that really connected us all. So, Well, thanks for those recommendations. And, and thank you for making time with us today. It really was a pleasure to have a chance to sit down and talk to you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And um, I appreciate you wanting to talk about Hector's story. Um, I always want to, to spread his story as far as it can go. And I appreciate your interest in what I have to say. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Lisa for joining us on The Candid Frame. You can check out our work by visiting lisakrantz.com. Thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover great conversations like the one you heard today. Thanks to Ricardo Silva for his heartfelt five-star review. That meant a lot. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and The Candid Frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on the donate button on The Candid Frame website or the show notes. Thanks to all who have recently contributed to the show, including Jonas Borchers and Maximenko Alexi. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple, iOS, Android, and Windows. It's the fastest and most convenient way to hear and save any of the great interviews we presented here at TCF. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at Ibarionex. And this is Ibarionex, and this is The Candid Frame.